Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School podcast. In this episode, we continue podcasting the audiobook version of the paperback Fearless Intelligence, The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. As we release Chapter 3, What is Fear?, I'm happy to announce we've begun to accept pre-orders of the paperback book. And so, though it's a few weeks away, you can reserve your own special edition autographed version of Fearless Intelligence by visiting fearlessintelligence.com and just click the pre-order button. Big bright yellow button at the top of the page, another one at the bottom, you can't miss it. Just go to fearlessintelligence.com and pre-order the book for delivery early in July of 2018. Soon thereafter, a Kindle edition will be available as well as the full audiobook, but you can begin to collect the chapters as individual podcasts absolutely free of charge. So here we go with chapter three, What is Fear? Fear is difficult to understand because it's an effect of not understanding. I knew solo backpacking was a bad idea. Every hiking book I'd ever read cautioned against it. But my radio news jobs usually fell on weekends, and I had trouble finding anyone to hike with me during the week. So I did a lot of day hiking and backpacking alone. Often, I'd meet other solo hikers on the trail, and in time, I gave up my apprehension about it. I was not a cross-country kind of guy. When I hiked my favorite trails through California's Sierra Nevada range, the Ventana Wilderness Hot Springs, and crests overlooking Big Sur, the high desert in Joshua Tree National Park, Oregon's Three Sisters Wilderness, Maui's Haleakala Crater and Iao Valley, or the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, San Gabriel Mountains, and Angeles National Forest, just above L.A., I rarely stepped off the well-worn trails. My most ambitious hike turned out to be the most perilous, and it's likely my troubles never would have occurred if I hadn't been hiking alone. I set out on a 50-mile ramble through the magnificent Sierra Nevada range from Lodgepole at 6,750 feet to the giant Sequoia Redwood Forest over Silliman Pass, 10,200 feet, down through Sugarloaf Valley at 7,000 feet, then up Dead Main Canyon to Elizabeth Pass at 11,370 feet, then back to Lodgepole through Bear Paw Meadow. Well-conditioned backpackers can hike this loop in three or four days, but I allowed myself a full week. The best part of hiking alone is the freedom to straggle whenever you feel like it, to stop and read a book during the mid-afternoon heat, fish a stream or glacial lake, or even sleep in a bit, and that's exactly what I did. The toughest day was the climb from Upper Ranger Meadow in Dead Man Canyon over Elizabeth Pass, then descending 3,350 feet to Lone Pine Creek. Though it was mid-August, I encountered a strange mix of misty rain, snow, hail, and lightning 
as I surmounted the narrow gap. From Elizabeth Pass, the views of Valhalla, the Triple Divide, and the peaks of the Great Western Divide are spectacular. Silence reigned but for the winds spilling over the ragged summits. Slowly turning, I was spellbound by the ineffable beauty of the range of light, a term coined only 100 years earlier by explorer John Muir as he wrote, After ten years spent in the heart of it, rejoicing and wondering, bathing in its glorious floods of light, seeing the sunbursts of morning among the icy peaks, the noonday radiance on the trees and rocks and snow, the flush of alpenglow and a thousand dashing waterfalls with their marvelous abundance of irised spray, it still seems to me, above all others, the range of light. My head was literally in the clouds, though they were dark and furious. A small rusty sign at the summit had Entering Kings Canyon National Park painted on its north side and Entering Sequoia National Park on the other. I thirsted to explore the ridgeline and drink in the blissful panorama, but the strange weather intimidated me, Plus, I relished the descent after three days of continuous climbing. Below me, warm, verdant slopes beckoned. After three miles of steep switchbacks, the trail leveled out, but I began to wonder whether I could march two more miles to the Bear Paw Meadow campsite before dark. My canteen was less than half full, and the trail was now cutting across sheer granite cliffs above the Cahuilla River. Park regulations discourage and in some cases forbid camping outside of designated sites in the backcountry. Not only is the mountain ecology fragile, but the canyons and meadows are ruled by black bears and mountain lions. Every night, hikers must suspend all their food, toothpaste, deodorant, chapstick, and sunblock in bear bags hung from the trees to discourage marauding predators. Throwing a sleeping bag down on the trail was not an option. I scanned my topographic map for an alternative campsite. If I'd been willing to backtrack nearly a mile, Tamarack Lake Trail would have brought me to a shady flat beside Lone Pine Creek. But the sun had sunk behind the rough peaks, and their shadows stretched deep into the gorge. Onward or backward, neither option was appealing. With only an hour of daylight to find a campsite, the adrenaline began to flow as the classic fight-or-flight response crept over me. The canyon walls seemed to slowly squeeze together. My attention narrowed. My breathing became more rapid. The wondrous beauty of the high Sierra range was usurped by a single definitive purpose, survival. Pressured, though not yet desperate, I wondered, why not take a shortcut? If I left the trail, heading diagonally, cross-country, I'd probably reach the campsite before dark. I scanned the horizon for a tall, distinct mountain peak or outcropping to help me keep my bearings once I left the footpath. I stepped off the trail and headed for my landmark. The undergrowth was much heavier than I'd expected, and pushing through the thickets of brush and chaparral frustrated my progress. 
As I rushed forward, I ignored the ground, getting softer and wetter, a kind of swampy bog I'd never encountered in the high country. My adrenaline levels were peaking, and without ever deciding to do so, I found myself running. I had to get out of the swamp. I had to get to camp before dark. I had to run, run, run. I don't think I ran more than 100 yards before a voice in the back of my head demanded my attention. Michael, something is very wrong here, it said. You're running through a swamp, crashing through brush with a 60-pound pack on your back. It's getting dark, and you don't really know where you are. Stop, Michael, just stop now. So I did. I stopped. The voice, however, continued. You're losing it, Michael. You're panicking. You're making things worse. Pull it together. I had practiced meditation and self-hypnosis for ten years or more, so I knew how to use breathing to relax. For the next couple of minutes, I stood still, watching myself recover. Breathing slowly and deeply, I consciously felt my muscles relaxing, letting go of stress and tension. Looking down at my feet, I found myself ankle-deep in muddy water. I almost laughed in relief as I realized what could have happened if I hadn't listened to that still, small voice in the back of my head. I began to walk again, but now carefully and deliberately. Soon I realized I was closer to the campground than I had feared. Wading the creek, I climbed up the bank to find the entire site vacant. I was tired, wet, and still alone. I filled my water bottle from the stream, lit my stove, and made a cup of tea. Oddly, I was not very hungry, so I didn't eat much. Instead, I set up my tent, bare-bagged my supplies, hung them, and pulled down my sleeping bag. I slept in fits and starts that night. Residual adrenaline continued to race through my bloodstream. I knew how fortunate I was to have escaped my panic without getting hurt. But nevertheless, I was still wired and edgy. I was irritated when a majestic buck mule deer wandered into camp looking for handouts. Normally, I love watching these gentle high country deer. But I tossed several pinches of gravel in its direction, hoping to be left alone. It was the greatest fear I've ever felt before or since, and I did it to myself. There was no danger, other than the danger my reflexive panic created, fear and anxiety born of what I did not understand about my situation and myself. The Shadows of Fear Fear is unsubstantial. It exists, but neither is a force nor form. Just as darkness exists as the mere absence of light, fear is a lack of awareness. It's felt as the heartache, confusion, and tension stimulated by unfamiliarity. Ignoring or denying fear further degrades awareness, intelligence, and performance. Consciously facing fear is like turning on a powerful light that pierces the shadows to reveal the truth of things. The common thread running through all problems is ignorance. 
You cannot reason with ignorance. It is irrational and frightening. But most people prefer the familiarity of their confusion and fear to the comfort and safety they do not know, and so their problems persist. Many people mistake the underlying currents of anxiety in humans for evil, corruption, or immorality. But it is unawareness, ignorance, confusion, and fear. In all cultures and all times, wise women and men have encouraged us to defeat the wicked with goodness, to eradicate ignorance with understanding, and to redeem fear and suffering with love. Fear begs us for redemption. The more specific we can be about fear, the more personal it becomes, until at its core we find fear thriving on our feeble and beleaguered sense of self. Those who ignore their fear and anxiety tend to interpret its vague, gnawing sensations as evidence they are truly alone and life is meaningless. But individuals who devote themselves to self-discovery soon recognize love and understanding as the antidote to fear and ignorance. Love and fear work together. Like latitude and longitude, they are coordinates that reveal our position between what we understand and what we do not understand. Positive, love-based feelings encourage us to stay the course. Negative, fear-based feelings disclose the need for specific course corrections. Pain and discomfort are just trying to help. Heartache and upset serve the same function as physical pain. Aches and pains are clues, symptoms to help us identify and treat injury or illness. Emotional discomfort is no different. The full range of emotional hurt, despair, distress, and dismay reveals a need to understand ourselves better. We call fear-based feelings negative emotions only because they hurt, not because they are unhelpful. Fear is the common stimulus behind the entire set of hurtful emotions. Rather than wishing we could abolish fear, we must redeem it with self-awareness, meaning insight and understanding. Any disinterest in exploring our individuality compounds our fear of the unknown as it struggles with the fear of inadequacy, intimacy, and change. The fear of social rejection battles with primal fears of being alone. The fear of dying is one side of our fear of living fully, much like the twin fears of success and failure. When our fear of self-awareness prevents us from looking deeper, it develops into vicious cycles of escalating fear and self-ignorance. We give away our power whenever we rely on the acceptance of others while blaming them for our discontent. We cannot heal what we refuse to feel and accept as our personal responsibility. Nothing of value comes from playing the victim. Both emotional and physical feelings are personal responses to the stimulus of life. A willingness to be accountable for all our emotions, thoughts, and behavior boosts personal power, effectiveness, and overall happiness. 
Fear has many names, expressing itself as routine stress, nonspecific anxiety, worry, nervousness, apprehension, dread, panic, terror, paranoia, anxiety disorders, including post-traumatic stress, obsessive-compulsive disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, numerous sleep and eating disorders, most forms of depression, and a broad variety of phobias. There are hundreds of names for the emotional heartache and dismay born of that fear, though the most common include sadness, anger, hate, contempt, grief, suspicion, disgust, and humiliation. Every emotional feeling that hurts, upsets, frustrates, or irritates us contains hidden gifts. By developing self-awareness, we can propagate the innate seeds of wisdom encased by our heartache. Separated, afraid, and alone in the unknown. Few situations are more frightening than feeling abandoned, separated, and alone. The trauma of birth starts a process of individuation that contributes to a lifetime of alienation and anxiety, even with the best parenting. In their earliest months, infants begin to realize they have detached from their mother. Over time, as mom comes and goes and various objects vanish and return, a child's separation of self from the external world intensifies. This subject-object split quickly expands from mom or me to them or us, and soon we presume differences are always opposites. Many adults retain these infantile, all-or-nothing presumptions as if anything that is not 100% true must be completely false. Situations are seen as either good or bad. If someone is not with you, they must be against you. Rooted in the limbic brain's fight-or-flight reflex, these polarized thought patterns, false dichotomies, binaryisms, bifurcation fallacies, are compounded by routine anxiety and reinforced by the apparent duality in gender, magnetic polarity, and the vibrating cyclic nature of all energy. Reflexive you-or-me belief systems aggravate unawareness, confusion, stress, anxiety, and fear. Further, the appearance of separation, each of us living in unique and disconnected bodies, supports our feelings of alienation and victimization. It is the insecure animal in us, not the self-aware human, that bites the rock thrown at us. No edges, no separation. The separate and distinct appearances of material forms is also an illusion. Even the densest elements have no edges and are less compact than a snowstorm. Matter is condensed energy, E equals mc squared. So every separate particle is actually an integral part of one cosmic energy field. The universe is an inconceivably vast ocean of potential energy in various states. Gravity, electromagnetism, nuclear, plasma, gas, liquid, and solids. Nobel Prize-winning physicist Eugene Wigner said, 
it was not possible to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics in a fully consistent way without reference to the consciousness. The content of the consciousness is the ultimate universal reality. And the brilliant physicist Max Planck admits, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature because in the last analysis, we ourselves are a part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. Even more simply, another Nobel Prize winner in physics, Erwin Schrodinger, has written, quantum physics thus reveals a basic oneness of the universe. Multiplicity is only apparent. In truth, there is only one mind. What is there to fear if there is only one of us here? Philosophers and theologians have several names for the unified energy field, God, Holy Spirit, consciousness, love, and awareness. The inseparability of energy, spirit, and matter is also described as non-dualism and non-duality. It is the kingdom within and around us, connecting everything to every other thing, the still, silent love that brings forth and sustains all life. Defining organic life has proven to be exceedingly difficult. The brains of mammals are more complex than those of reptiles or insects, and clearly, some animals are more self-aware than others. But it appears all life forms are conscious. The plant kingdom is self-replicative and responsive to its environment. Paramecium and amoeba exhibit a rudimentary aptitude in their ability to learn and remember. There's a wealth of nascent research about the intelligence demonstrated by single-cell protista, a kingdom of organisms that is not animal, plant, nor fungi. Even the slime mold Fazerum has been shown to solve the shortest path problem when hunting for food hidden by researchers in tiny mazes. The One and the Many Western mystics use the phrase the one and the many to explain physical creatures as diverse yet inalienable extensions, fragments or facets of a single source. Eastern scholars often refer to a two-truth doctrine, acknowledging the relative truth of matter appearing as separate forms plus the absolute truth of non-duality. Further, Consciousness is viewed as relative, while awareness is understood to be absolute. The teacher Nisargata Maharaj said, Awareness is absolute. Consciousness is relative to its content. Consciousness is always of something. Consciousness is partial and changeful. Awareness is total, changeless, calm and silent and it is the common matrix of every experience. Imagine flying through interstellar space on a small asteroid. Your spacesuit provides all the air, water, and nutrition you need to survive. Suddenly, the asteroid splits in half. Would you need to hold on? And if the asteroid shattered into a dozen or a thousand pieces, would holding on change anything? 
Well, of course not, because you and the asteroid would continue to float through space at a meaningless speed, except relative to some other object in space. There is no up or down, no forward or back, no left or right in deep space, but our instincts tell us to hold on for dear life. Like riding a roller coaster, we hold on if we're afraid, but when excited, we let go and raise our hands above our head. Fear and excitement are similar feelings. Weak knees, girded loins, butterflies in the stomach, heart palpitations, lump in the throat, and sweaty palms. Reflexive tension aggravates fear. Letting go of these same feelings fosters excitement that motivates us onward and upward. Humanistic and transpersonal academics suggest we emancipate fear and ignorance with love and understanding, initially as self-awareness, followed by empathy and compassion for others. Holy Holism Meticulous scientific examinations of nature reveal endless patterns of harmony and unity in all things. The interreliance of the animal, plant, and mineral kingdoms supports the ancient monistic theories about the non-dual synergy of the environment. Ecologists credit the philosopher Jan Christian Smuts with having coined the term holism, in 1926, as the interreliance of nature began receiving wide acceptance. Later, the philosopher-architect R. Buckminster Fuller wrote at length about nature developing synergistic systems in which parts work together to produce better results than the sum of those parts. In his 1981 book, Critical Path, Fuller wrote, there are no solids, there are no things. There are only interfering and non-interfering patterns operating in pure principle, and principles are eternal. Principles never contradict principles. The synergistic integral of the totality of principles is God. Fear is born of our failure to recognize the universe as an integrated whole system, as if this one is not that one, and I am not that. Though novel to most Westerners, a core principle of Eastern philosophy from the ancient Upanishads is tatvam asi, meaning you are that, and consequently the appearance of separation is an illusion. The Basics of Fear and Heartache All fear is fear of the unknown. Most people not only fear what they don't understand about themselves, but also are frightened of understanding themselves better. Fear runs the gamut from terror and panic to nervous worry and mild apprehension. Most dictionaries define fear as uncomfortable, tense feelings triggered by danger, real or imagined. But more precisely, fear indicates confusion, ignorance, and a lack of awareness or understanding. Fear always highlights some lack of self-awareness, regardless of whether it includes an external threat. It is an internal signal that urges us to seek greater understanding of the world within and around us. In this sense, our personal fear is a friend and ally, becoming a painful problem only when ignored or denied. 
Fearlessness is not unawareness, rejection, or denial of fear, but rather the willingness to intimately embrace everything unknown so we may learn, understand, and evolve. Some of my students and clients object to this concept, insisting that spiders, snakes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, for example, are frightening because they are dangerous. I won't deny that fear can be an instinctive reaction to danger, real or imagined, but in either case, fear is a direct reflection of what we do not understand. The better we understand dangerous threats, the less we fear them. Since fear originates in unawareness, ignorance, and confusion, it's most evident when there is no reason for it. This condition is called free-floating, or nonspecific anxiety. Many people suffer from the false narrative that fear protects them, that expecting the worst will somehow help them more carefully avoid it. But this misconception is contradicted by three widely accepted axioms. The law of attraction, you get what you expect. Target fixation, you go where you look. And karma, you reap what you sow. Pessimists defend their negativity as realistic. Ironically, they generate evidence that their futility is justified, just as disorganized thinkers foster chaos and optimists produce positive outcomes. Life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Americans are especially disposed to externalize their fear. There are more guns in the U.S. than people, 50% more per capita than any other nation. Half of all guns in America are owned by just 3% of the population, while more than two-thirds of Americans are unarmed and unafraid. Despite a significant drop in violent crime, a 2016 study by Harvard and Northeastern universities determined that the fear of other people had become the primary motive for gun ownership in the U.S. A radical shift from a 1994 report showing most guns were purchased for hunting in sports shooting. There are violent criminals and terrorists in the world, but fear lives within us. It's always smarter to manage our irrational fear than the imaginary danger we project on others. Evidence of fear's irrationality is easy to find. Many parents use fear of the boogeyman to keep their children in bed at night. Millions of people refuse to swim in the ocean due to their fear of shark attack. Globally, 5 to 10 people per year die from shark attacks, though mosquito bites kill up to 1 million people annually and few people fear mosquitoes. Fear of flying is another example of unwarranted anxiety. Statistically, we're much safer in an airplane than in a car. Airplane crashes are rare, while automobile accidents kill 30,000 to 40,000 Americans every year. And some true dangers don't feel frightening at all. Slip and fall accidents, cigarettes, alcohol, pharmaceuticals, and high-fat foods. Facts have little or no influence over those who suffer from irrational phobias. Some phobias will distress nearly one in ten Americans in their lifetime. Although the complex causes of phobias, panic attacks, 
obsessive compulsive disorder and general anxiety disorders are not well understood, most researchers agree both genetics and environment are factors. The Subjectivity of Fear-Based Emotions Despite appearances, the world is now safer than it's ever been. In those rare instances when we are confronted by real, clear, and present danger, our fear says little or nothing about the danger itself. Instead, fearful responses point to our unawareness, confusion, and misunderstanding about our vulnerability. The best way to manage fear, whether or not it's related to danger, is to control and explore it intuitively. As you'll see in later chapters, Fearless Intelligence provides techniques and instruction to face fear and appreciate the insight and understanding concealed within it. Fear is not a single emotion. It is the common thread running through all hurt and upset. Anger, sadness, distrust, disgust, envy, irritation, frustration, desperation, humiliation, heartache, and confusion. Often we feel a combination of several emotions simultaneously, which adds to our confusion. Unlike thoughts, which are heard and pictured in the mind, emotions are felt in the physical body, mostly in the core between the heart and abdomen. Sometimes the upper and lower extremities are involved, as in flushed cheeks, sweaty palms, girded loins, or weak knees. Besides the brain's basic aptitude for logic, there are three other nerve plexes, meaning braided networks, that provide non-logical information to the brain. The cardiac plexus at the base of the heart has long been associated with positive emotions and intuition, while the sacral plexus corresponds to hurtful emotions, instinct, and reflexive behavior. These two plexuses overlap and share the belly's solar plexus, which communicates directly to the brain through the vagus nerve. Commonly, the words intuition and instinct are mistakenly conflated. Sometimes called the sixth sense, neither is actually a sense. Instead, intuition and instinct are two forms of non-logical intelligence, not illogical, but complementary alternatives to deductive reasoning. The symptom is not the problem. Semanticist Alfred Korzybski wrote, The map is not the territory, as a way of explaining that words are symbols of the meanings they represent. An ancient example can be found in the Buddhist sutra that says, The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Our perception of reality is biased by the stories we tell ourselves. Typically, the personal narratives that define us are dreadful compared to what's really happening. The hurt caused by fear-based emotions is a symptom of complex underlying anxieties. Pain, whether emotional or physical, points to more elusive disorders that need insight and understanding to be relieved. When the alternator warning light on your car's dashboard lights up, you don't replace the light. 
Instead, you open the hood and test the alternator, voltage regulator, drive belt, and battery. When your gas gauge nears the empty mark, you don't repair the gas gauge, you add gas. Emotions are your brain's dashboard. Concealing your car's dashboard won't prevent problems. In the same way, gobbling down opioids to block physical pain or antidepressants to disregard emotional distress can be just as misguided, especially for extended periods. So instead of repressing anger with a third beer, ask yourself why you're so angry. Rather than insulting a waitress over poorly prepared food, consider why you've been feeling irritable all day. And when you shout, Look what you made me do. Pause and accept responsibility for your actions. Some small portion of our despair and discontent reflects what we do not understand about the world. But the bulk of our emotional pain is symptomatic of our failure to understand our true nature and the emotional feelings it produces. As we understand the significance of our emotional heartache and anxiety, it stops. It simply vanishes as self-awareness expands. To summarize, fearless intelligence includes four critical principles. One, fear and anxiety are reactions to whatever we do not understand about our situation and ourself, whether dangerous or not. Two, our hurtful emotions are symptoms of fear and anxiety. All sadness, dismay, despair, heartache, frustration, irritation, and humiliation. Three, the antidote is awareness, understanding both our self-worth and the hidden meaning of our emotional discomfort. And four, awareness can be learned through stress reduction and mindfulness. In Plato's classic allegory of the cave, men who have spent countless years imprisoned in a deep, dark cavern are terrified by the bright colors and clearly defined forms when they break out into the full light of day. They hurry back into the cave where they find comfort in the familiarity of shadow and muted shades of gray, prisoners of their fear and ignorance. Our fear and unawareness is like the leg collar and chain once used to restrain baby circus elephants. Even after adult elephants are strong enough to easily break their restraints, they no longer try. They remain bound, not by the chains, but by their limited beliefs. Awareness is mindful detachment. Just as we can ponder conflicting thoughts without committing to one or another, we can better understand our fear and hurtful emotions from a detached, elevated perspective. A simple definition of this mindfulness is to be aware of the present moment without judgment. Or said another way, to relax and passively watch your thoughts and feelings unfold without scrutiny, deliberation, or labeling. Mindful detachment provides us with an expanded overview, as if stepping back or rising above our emotions to see the bigger picture. Emotions are like water, turning opaque when disturbed, yet transparent when still. 
As mindfulness calms our emotions, we can peer into their depths and see our overshadowing spiritual values reflected on the surface. For example, imagine seeing your own anger coming toward you, still small and on the horizon, but growing. You might think, if I don't do something soon, I'll become angry and react in ways I'll later regret. Being aware of our anger helps us avoid the victimization and helplessness of getting angry. An awareness of the hurt and fear behind anger reveals why we're upset, a realization that permits us to choose more appropriate responses. Such insight requires us to view our emotional feelings as personal reactions. People who see themselves as victims of the hurt and upset are unlikely to consider the valuable insight they contain. While the adage, think twice, and on second thought, have multiple meanings, consider the benefits of double-checking your impulsive thoughts and feelings before reacting. In a refined sense, a second thought is not merely an additional thought, but an opportunity to gain an elevated perspective, an opening to see whether we're truly aware of the consequences of reacting too quickly to our thoughts and feelings. Awareness can be learned with stress reduction and mindfulness. The skill of developing self-awareness on demand is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. With the exercises detailed in this book, you can develop an ability to shift at will to an objective understanding of your emotions. Instead of acting like a helpless victim, you can mindfully step back, expand your awareness, and make conscious choices about your attitudes and responses. The Blame Game Fear is difficult to understand because not understanding can be frightening, whether new or old, unknown or known. How often have you asked yourself, what am I afraid of, before realizing you have no idea. You simply feel afraid, nervous, stressed, or apprehensive for no apparent reason, and that's the point. Whenever we're confused, uninformed, or unaware, fear alerts us, whether dangerous or not. Blaming people who frustrate and irritate us provides no advantage or benefit. The world in which we live is not the real cause of frustration. We only appear to be targets, victims, or effects of a life done to us. We can always choose our point of view and initiate an appropriate response. Imagine a friend playfully poking you where you're already bruised. You cry out, hey, that hurt. But the person who poked you becomes defensive and says, no, that shouldn't have hurt you. You reply, yes, it did hurt. You poked me where I was already bruised, and it really hurt. To which the other person counters, well, then I didn't hurt you. You were already hurt. And, of course, both things are true. Your friend did hurt you, but only because you were already injured. We all carry old emotional bruises from childhood and adolescence, emotional wounds that never fully healed and frequently hurt us when others unknowingly arouse them. 
This explains why negative emotions often seem misdirected and out of proportion. The conditions that irritate us often aggravate old, unresolved heartache. Once we accept our emotions as personal responses, we can recognize them as symptoms of our confusion. Expanding self-awareness with stress reduction exposes the reasons we suffer, and the insight and understanding that follows sets us free from our fear and ignorance. Exercises Remember a time when you were afraid but didn't know why. Close your eyes, relax, and ask yourself, was I in any real danger at the time? If not, what did that particular fear represent? What did you learn about yourself? Recall a recent occasion when you were angry or depressed. Was there any fear in those feelings? What did you learn about yourself? Mm-hmm.